Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. We're going to open God's Word together this morning. We're excited about it. We're in week number 12 of our series in the story. And um, hopefully things, hopefully you're tracking along with the story. If you're not, uh, you can jump in at any time. You don't have to go back and read the first 12 chapters. You can start at chapter 12, and that will be just fine. Uh, so we're, we're doing a series on the story. It's a 31-week series. And so this week, it's week 12. If you do not have a storybook, if you'd like a storybook, maybe we can put some back on the back table Please feel free to grab one. We want everyone to be able to uh, track along with the church and what we're doing in our small groups on Sunday mornings. So this has been really, really helpful. It's a, it's a chronological walk through the entire Bible in 31 weeks, like we said. And so we're, we're, we start in Genesis. We end in the last uh, chapter of Revelation. And we do it all in 31 weeks, which is quite a large and aggressive uh, run through the Bible. However... With the story, uh, it cuts out some of the sections, some Levitical laws and genealogies and things like that. So it helps us to be able to kind of keep track of what's happening big picture in in God's Word. So if you don't have one, please feel free to get one uh, in the back table today before you leave. All right, if you want to just pray with me and uh, we'll just commit our time to the Lord and ask Him to help us as we dig into His Word. So Lord Jesus, thank you this morning for the gift of your word. And God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. God, we pray that you would, uh, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, give us understanding of your word. Give us uh, just an, an, an awareness, God, of the glory and the majesty that are written across every page of your word today. Lord, I pray that, um, that you would give us hearts that are open and receptive to receive from you, Lord. And we thank you so much for uh, just the gift that you have given to us through your word, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. In your name we pray, amen. I want to, this morning before we launch into uh, our story series, I want to just welcome Evan and Mandy Edmondson this morning. We're going to try to get them to move back up here. So do all that you can while they're here this week to get them to stay, okay? It's good to see you guys back. All right. Once there was a little boy who lived in the country. They had to use an outhouse for a facility, and the little boy absolutely hated the outhouse because it was always hot in the summer, cold in the winter, and stunk all the time. So the little boy decided that because the outhouse was on the bank of a creek... He would push the outhouse into the water. After a spring rain, when the creek was fully swollen, the boy knew it was time to push the outhouse into the creek. He got a big stick, and he pushed, and the outhouse toppled into the creek and floated away. Later that night, his dad told him that they were going to make a trip to the woodshed. Well, the little boy knew that meant a spanking. He asked his father why, and the father said, because... Someone pushed the outhouse into the creek today, and I think it was you. Wasn't it, son? The boy answered, Yes, it was, Dad. Then the little boy thought and said, Dad, today I read in school that when George Washington cut down the cherry tree, 
He didn't get into trouble because he told the truth. The father responded, well, yes, son, but George Washington's father wasn't in that cherry tree. That's one of those jokes that kind of gets funny over time. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, that's, that is funny, okay. Most of us have never toppled an outhouse, right? I don't think. Um, but all, all of us can identify with that boy in three ways, and we're going to look at that this morning. First, our sin always affects other people. Our sin always affects others. Second, there's always consequences for our choices. There's always a consequence for the choices we make. And third, yet, the grace of God is bigger than our mistakes. The grace of God is bigger than our mistakes. This morning, we're looking at uh, week 12 in the story. And this coincides with uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're familiar with, the, with this, the, the life of King David, this story, this story with David and Bathsheba, is one of the centerpieces of David's life. And so King David was a shepherd boy, tending sheep in his, with his father's flocks. And God takes him and turns him into a king of Israel, the king of God's people. And as a matter of fact, in 1 Samuel 13, we read that the Lord sought out a man after his own heart. That King David was considered a man after God's own heart. That's not written about really anyone else in Scripture, but this person in particularly was understood as someone who is a man after God's very own heart. He was also a military genius, right? Saul killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. He was a sweet psalmist of Israel, writing songs and composing music, was a pretty good harpist, which back then would have been really cool, right? Now you'd think, oh, that's kind of sissy, right? But not, you know, that was like the electric guitar of the day. So he was a good guitarist or psalmist. He wrote music, led worship. As a matter of fact, when the ark of the Lord's coming through into the Jerusalem, David is before all the people dancing so hard that his clothes are falling off. I mean, this guy was just passionate about the Lord. He was a psalmist, a military genius. He danced before the Lord. And in his kingship, the Lord had turned everything David touched into gold. I mean, everything that David had done just excelled and succeeded in everything. This guy was like Abraham Lincoln, Chris Tomlin, and Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf all rolled into one. He was the man. And so we see in in 2 Samuel chapter 9, just going back just a few verses... David's kingdom is established. And usually when a king would come and establish a new lineage, a new line of kings, they would make sure to wipe out the rest of the remaining king's family who went before him so that there would be no competition for the throne. But here David, in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, finds some, uh, a grandchild of King Saul, the king that was before him in Israel. And David asks, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake, the king's son? So in chapter 9, we, building up to chapter 11, we see David finding Mephibosheth and 
lavishing him with kindness. You can eat at my table. I'm going to take care of all of your needs. I'm going to provide for you. Turn over to chapter 10. David's, David's uh, neighboring king, the neighboring kingship in the Amorites, that the king of the Amorites passed away. And now his son was on the throne. So David, in chapter 10, sends a delegation to send their condolences to the king's son whose father had passed away. David, again, showing immeasurable kindness to even the people, even the neighboring nations who would have been his enemy at the time. So he's caring for the king's family. He's caring for the neighboring nations. And now we get to chapter 11. And this is the part where the wheels fall off the cart. Let's begin reading 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Reba, but David remained in Jerusalem. So the writer here is making sure we know this is the time when kings go out to war. And Joab, David's general, his leader of his army, he took the king's men out to battle, but David is nowhere to be found amongst the army. David stayed back at the time when kings go out to war. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent his word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent, to him, sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why did you not go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live... I will do no such thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem, and that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his his mat among his master's servants and did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab 
had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the, knew the strongest defenders were. Verse 17, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of, in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And Joab sent David a full account of the, of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may be flared up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jer- Jerbebesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Then the messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open. We drove them back into the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows from your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. In this chapter, we see David. David is the one who's in control. And none of our questions are answered. We read this and we think, why was Bathsheba on her roof taking a bath? Why wasn't David at war with his army? Did the servants know what had taken place between David and Bathsheba? I mean, the servant that came to David and said, hey, this is you know, Bathsheba, here's who her father is, and by the way, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He knew what was going on. Did the servants all know? Was this, did this get out to all the people in the land? Did word leak out to Uriah? Maybe when Uriah came back, he, had, he, had, he didn't go back to his house because he knew something was stinky going on in the palace. But none of those things are ever answered for us. It almost like this gives us just the bare bones details of just the cold, hard facts. None of those things are answered for us. It's just, even Joab, Bathsheba, and Uriah, they're all peripheral characters in this. They just kind of come and go. They're, they're there one minute, they're gone the next. There's no mention of God or even a consideration of God. The attention of this passage is solely focused on the actions of David. I want to read this quote by Walter Brugman. This is a very interesting quote, but I want to read this to us. He writes this about this chapter. The action is quick. The verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he lay. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There is no adornment to the action. The woman gets some verbs. She returned, she conceived, but the action is so stark. There is nothing but action. There is no conversation. There is no hint of caring, of affection, of love, only lust. David does not call her by name, does not even speak to her. At the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. The verb that finally counts is conceived, but the telling verb is 
that he took her. And even after Joab, the general of David's army, reports back to David about the death of Uriah, David, in this passage, brushes it off like it's no big deal. Hey, Joab, this is kind of stuff happens in battle. Don't worry about it. I mean, this is, we're talking about war here. People lose their lives every day in battle. Don't worry about it. Just don't even think about it. Hey, everything's going to be okay. To David, he's trying to make this no big deal. This isn't a big deal. It says, Joab, don't, don't let it bother you. This isn't anything. So in the end, David covers his tracks, ties up to loose ends, and sits back to enjoy a plan perfectly executed. That's the lower story. And at the end of this chapter, we get the upper story. This is where we see things from God's perspective. The very end of this chapter, the last half of the last verse, we read this. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. That's the upper story. As in the beginning of this chapter, the action's rushed. It moves by pretty quick. It's just everything happens. But in the end, it's like everything comes to a screeching halt. And in this passage, we get heaven's perspective on what David had done. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Where David said to Joab, hey, look, this isn't a big deal. Joab, don't worry about this. To the Lord, it was a big deal. To the Lord, it was a big deal. And in this chapter, we read the word sends. The word sends. It's, it appears 12 times in these few verses. Chapter, verses 1, 3, 4, 5, 3 times in verse 6, 12, 14, 18, 22, 27. Everybody's sending. Everybody's sending something. Now we begin chapter 12. God now does the sending. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And we all know that Nathan is about to light David up, right? We all get that. We've all... We've all probably been around this for a little bit. We understand Nathan's about ready to just to cut David to the heart. But I don't want us to miss this because in this we see the grace of God pursuing the sinner. The grace of God is pursuing David. In Luke chapter 19 verse 10, Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost. That he's pursuing those who are lost, those who've gone off the path. Those who've completely missed the mark. This is what Almighty God does. He pursues the sinner. And in this we see that in sending, in sending Nathan to David, the Lord Almighty is pursuing David. As painful as it's going to be, I don't want us to miss this crucial aspect. That in these few words we see a God who is bent on pursuing and redeeming and loving and lavishing grace upon his people. He doesn't leave David to himself. He pursues David. David didn't go looking for God. God went looking for David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Without this grace, there wouldn't be a single person in this church. This place would be empty. Without, without this testimony, the Lord pursued me 
there wouldn't be a single person here. This is all of her testimonies. The Lord pursued me. And my sin and my foolishness and things that displeased the Lord, he came and he found me. He sent someone after me. He found me where I was. He didn't wait for me to look after him. He didn't wait for me to pursue him. He didn't wait for me to get things figured out. He pursued me. This is the testimony of the grace of Almighty God. He sends Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children, shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Verse 7. Then David said to David, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And he begins to recount the grace and mercy of God. I anointed you over king of Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He recounts all of God's mercy to David. I anointed I gave, I delivered. In light of all of God's grace to you, David, out of all that God has done for you, out of all the mercies of God that have been lavished upon your life, why have you despised God's word? And God, his, his very self. He says there's going to be serious consequences for your disobedience. And at this moment, all the weight of what David had done over the past 
who knows, year or however long it's been, comes completely crashing down upon his shoulders. I mean, he is confronted starkly and powerfully by all that he had done. And David simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. In the Hebrew, this is only two words. Of all that Nathan has just said, David doesn't say, well, well, Bathsheba was up on the roof, and what do you expect me to do? And, and, and it's her fault, and it's not, how am I going to know that she was married to Uriah? And you know, maybe things were really bad between them. And I mean, he doesn't offer any, any other, he doesn't offer any excuses, doesn't blame anybody else. He fully accepts responsibility for what he's done. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And where King Saul, the, the king before David, when he was confronted with this sin, he backpedals, he, he blames, he gives excuses. There's every reason in the book why, why King Saul had, had disobeyed the Lord. King David simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. Simple prayer. Reminds me of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. They both go to the temple to pray. The Pharisee lays out all his, all his junk before the Lord and I'm so glad that I'm not like one of these sinners and I do this and I do this. And the, the tax collector goes to the temple and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And it says the tax collector went away justified. It's just a simple, simple prayer before the Lord. It's not complicated. It's not long and drawn out. It's not building a case for yourself. It's simply throwing yourself at the very mercy of Almighty God. And the beautiful thing about this passage is that we are given in Psalm 51 David's response to his confrontation with Nathan. So Psalm 51, turn over to Psalm 51 with me because this is what we read after David has has poured out his guts to the Lord, confronted with his sin, realizing the the pain and the damage that he's caused, understanding the, the ramifications for all that he had done. We get to Psalm 51 and here we hear David's own words the turmoil in his heart. And you can imagine as you read this psalm, this is not a psalm that's, that's read in a monotone kind of, hey, I'm just going to spill it out, Lord. This is one, a, a psalm that was poured out with, with, with tears and with sorrow and with grief for what he had done. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. These were many transgressions. Murder, adultery. He's trying to deceive everybody. He says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my many transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Look, man, there wasn't a day that went by that David didn't sit there and understand what had taken place and what he'd done. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against Joab. He had sinned against the whole country. But he rightly puts this into perspective. It says that my sin is ultimately first and foremost against a holy and righteous God Almighty. This is where it's at. 
that I have despised the word of the Lord. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant to me a willing spirit to sustain me. And after David has poured out his heart, we read God's reply to David. Simply this, on page 65 in the story, we read this, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. It's beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful that David simply says, forgive me, And after all he had done, after all the sin that David had committed, after everything that, all the lives he has screwed up, and all the things that he has done to to mess with the people around him and destroy the lives around him, God is able to say, forgiven. That's it, period, forgiven. Your sin is forgiven. You've been cleansed. See, in Leviticus 20, in a Deuteronomy 22, that adultery was a capital offense towards the Hebrew law, towards God's law. And David had deserved to die because of what he had done. And that's why he says, you are not going to die. But because of this, the child born from this affair died in David's place. Serious consequences. I want to go back to what we said at the very beginning. The three points we made about our first, our sin always affects others. Bathsheba lost a husband. Uriah lost his, his life. David lost a child. Everyone connected to David was affected by a sin. That there is always an effect towards other people because of our sin. No matter how big or how small. It doesn't matter. Our sin is never just localized to ourselves. It always has collateral damage associated with it, no matter what. Talking with men who struggle with pornography, we can think, well, this sin is something that just is between me and God and it doesn't affect anyone else. But in talking with men time and time again, The relationships of the people around them always are affected. There's a loss of intimacy with their wife. There's a withdrawal from their lives of their children. It it has, sin always has, even the most private sin, even the sin that we think, this only affects me, this is only something that, that I deal with, it always has an effect on the people around us. And we see this in David's life. He just, you think, well, he just slept with someone. What's the big deal? It had, a, it had a massive effect on the people around him. Number two, there's always consequences for our choices. 
And there was unbelievable turmoil in David's family for the rest of his life. The next seven or eight chapters in 2 Samuel have to deal with the effects of the very thing that Nathan said was going to happen. There's turmoil. As the children watched their father disregard human life, take things that didn't belong to him, that same pattern is repeated over and over and over again in the lives of his children. We were talking about this this morning, and my dad shared a quote with me. He said, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. You can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. And we sang that song today, the Amazing Grace song. Grace taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear is relieved. That there is an almighty God who puts consequences to our actions to protect us, to keep us safe. It's the fear of the Lord that keeps us near to him. There's a fear, there's a natural fear of the Lord. Say, God, I do not want to despise your word. I want to walk near to you because I know just on the overside of the other side of that fence, on the other side of that road, I know there's danger waiting for me. And it's your kindness and goodness to, to keep me near to you so I can stay away from the danger and away from the destruction that's so, that's so waiting all around me. Our sin affects others. There's always consequences to our choices. But third and most importantly, yet the grace of God is bigger than all of our mistakes. The grace of God is bigger than all of our mistakes. See, the grace doesn't let the sinner remain in their own sin. It exposes the sin. It, it doesn't shame, but it helps us to be reorientated back to the Lord again. Proverbs 14, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And God is graciously warning us, saying, look, there is a way that seems right to you, but it leads to death. Therefore, walk in my ways. Follow after me. Stay near to me. In my grace, I'm going to show, lavish you with kindness and mercy. And just like David was trying to just pacify Joab, trying to make, make just little of what had taken place, we need to see things from heaven's perspective, but realize the answer to our, to our sin is not us trying to fix it, but trusting in Almighty God. That God alone heals, forgives, restores, redeems all the mess that we've made. Our one-year-old Max loves to play with cords. I don't know if your kids do that. Your little kids love to play with cords. I don't know if they think it's a fun rope, or I don't know what they think it is, but they love to play with cords. They love to go over and plug it from the wall, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they think it's no, he thinks it's no big deal. But he has no idea the consequences for his actions. Electrocution is, is something that, you know, if a little kid sticking something in the light socket or whatever, it has some serious ramifications. And it's in our love for Max that as he goes to reach for that cord that we flick his hand and say, no, this is not for your good. This is only going to end in destruction for you. You cannot continue on playing with cords and light sockets and be okay. We pursue him. We guard his ways. God didn't wait for David to turn to him, but pursued David and sought him out. 
Grace isn't just niceness, but it puts guardrails up to keep us from driving off the road. The consequences were so severe that David would never be tempted to do this again. This isn't something that David ever repeated again. Not only that, but it provides a warning for us all. As we wrap this up, I want to read for us Titus 3. And in Titus 3, this is just a beautiful passage because we have all made mistakes in our minds, big, little, excusable. We have reasons. There's all kinds of things. But I feel like this morning that God, as we even look through this, that God is putting His finger, the Holy Spirit is putting His finger on our hearts and areas of our lives that we need to find a grace and a mercy and a repentance from the Lord in. Not that we minimize it, but that we would come to the Lord fully understanding of all that we've done and find the grace and mercy of God. This is what Titus 3 reads. At one time, we too were foolish, as all of us, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We've got hope in the Lord because Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be forgiven and redeemed and set free. We've got hope today for the forgiveness of our sins, the cleansing of all of our iniquity and everything we've done and righteousness in Jesus Christ because He has made a way for us. And just like David, as we repent of our sins, we can hear the sweet words of the Savior. You're forgiven. You are forgiven. This week, as Matt has reminded all of us, Thanksgiving, it's a great time to eat as much food as you possibly can in a short amount of time. But along with that, undoubtedly with our families and the people we get together with, it seems like there's always, there's always brokenness in all of our families. There's, there can be anger, resentment, bitterness, gossip, refusal to reconcile with people. And I want for us so badly to find the place of grace in the Lord this week. That no matter what has transpired, no matter what has taken place, no matter what we have done or what's been done against us, that there would, we would find a place of grace in the Lord to entrust ourselves to Him. God's grace is reaching out to us. As we hear these words this morning, God's grace is reaching out to you right where you're at. God has made available to us through Jesus Christ all the mercy we need to repent of our, of our sin, find mercy and hope. And so that at the end, at the end of King David's life, after all 
of his experiences with Bathsheba, with Nathan, with his country, with his kids, with everything that David has done. You think of all of the things that he's experienced in his life. We turn over to Psalm 23, and we're going to end with this. King David, writing the most beloved psalm, he writes this, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Think of all that David has experienced. Running for, running for his life from Saul, the, the battles, the, the, the brokenness in his family, the brokenness in his own life, and he says, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the, the, the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell with you in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you today that you are the good shepherd. And Lord, we thank you today that you beckon us to draw near to you that you have pursued us. God, the fact that we are here this morning hearing your word proclaimed, God, you are pursuing us. You are speaking to us. You are revealing your grace to us. And Lord, I pray this morning that no matter the things we've done, the places we've gone, the motives in our heart, Lord, I pray that your grace would conquer all. God, that you would reorientate us back to you again. Lord, that we would find a place of grace and rest and peace in you. In your name we pray. Amen.